Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Innest, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Brandon Keogh, the author of The Video Game Industry Does Not Exist, Why We Should Think Beyond Commercial Game Production from 2023. Sorry. The publisher is MIT Press. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice. Also, feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now, back to the show. The video game industry, we are told, is a multi-billion dollar high-tech business conducted by large corporations in North America, Europe, and East Asia. But in reality, most video games today are made by small clusters of people working on shoestring budgets, relying on existing, freely available software platforms, and hoping, often in vain, to rise to stardom. In short, people working like artists. Aiming squarely at this disconnect between perception and reality, the video game industry does not exist, presents a more accurate and nuanced picture of how the vast majority of video game makers work. And dear listeners, let me tell you a little secret why I am so hyped today. Back in 2009, I read an article in Kill Screen number two from this very gentleman, and now he's right here with me. Welcome, Brandon. Hello, thanks for having me. That's going back a fair way to kill. Yeah, it does. It's really great. <laughs> um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I'm a senior lecturer at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, in Australia. Um, I'm a game studies research primarily from, I suppose, the humanities side of game studies, very much a media cultural studies upbringing. Um, look, going back, you mentioned Kill Screen 2009. Um, through my undergrad, through my um, postgrad, doing my PhD, was very interested in games or just studying kind of film studies, media studies subjects and thinking, oh, Maybe you could look at games in the same kind of critical way. And I was doing games journalism, games criticism at the same time. And essentially during my PhD, I was like, well, do I want to become an academic or a game critic? Let's see which one starts paying me full-time first. And one thing led to another, and now I'm an academic, which tells you something about the state of game journalism. And 
yeah, I guess I guess that's me. I just write about games a lot. Well, of course, um, we have to check all our guests, actually, for your Ludo Street credibility. Please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now. God, yeah. Um, you warned me about this question. I've been trying to think of an answer, which is very hard. Um, it's really hard to think of a favorite game, I suppose, probably. Let's go like, I guess, maybe one of the most formative games for me, especially as an academic, would be Slave of God by Increpare, which also features as um, the cover of my first book, my 2018 one, A Play of Bodies. And so it's a very, very simple walking simulator, we'd call it now, but I don't think it was called that when it came out. Where you essentially just go to a nightclub for a night and leave again. It's very short, like a little vignette game, but just incredible colors and sounds, just kind of barrage in your face. But um, it kind of really taught me how limited some of the frameworks can be when we talk about games purely in terms of i think mechanics or choice or systems and it kind of made me start thinking about video games more i guess in a material specific audio visual kind of way so that game means a lot to me uh, my more popular answer would have been binary domain by sega which is an incredible bizarre cover shooter by the yakuza team um, it's like if a japanese team made gears of war but also had the themes of blade runner absolutely incredible um, and right now it's cliche and um, probably most people if you recorded right now would give you the same answer is I'm playing Tears of the Kingdom, which probably isn't surprising at all. Um, not even really a huge Zelda fan, but massive Breath of the Wild fan. So that is what I'm doing with my life right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's true. Most and this would be actually a very frequent answer, yeah. <laughs> Before we start our deep dive now, please tell our listeners, how did you come to write The Video Game Industry Does Not Exist in the first place? Yeah, so my PhD, which I finished in 2015, was very much focused on, I think, like a lot of game studies is, on, I would say, the content of games, like, you know, textual analysis, looking at narratives, looking at themes, looking at ideas, I suppose, you know, quote unquote, inside the game. Um, But at the same time, I was very involved in kind of the emerging indie game scene in Melbourne. It was a very exciting time in Melbourne with a lot of weird experimentation, had a lot of friends making games. And then I moved up to Brisbane, another city in Australia, and started teaching game development full-time post my PhD at, at a local college while trying to find an, acad an academic job. And so between having a lot of friends who were game developers and teaching game development, I was getting more and more interested in The fact that these these things that I'd been writing about and researching are actually made by human beings, they're made under complicated contexts. And a lot of the time when we talked about games in game studies, I think, but also in popular discourses, we often kind of separate them from, I guess, the labor and the um, processes that led to it. It's just, oh, why did the developer do this? Or why didn't they just do X or something? And or when developers were talked about, they were talked about primarily as, say, businesses or companies, which in, in a way they're very much disconnected. There was a disconnect for me between that way of talking about it and the friends I had who were kind of acting more like artists or indie musicians, just kind of making games and trying to make a break. And then one thing led to another. I was able to get a large, um, incredible kind of fellowship grant through the Australian Research Council which effectively allowed me to research three years full-time on one project, gave me a lot of money to do um, field work. And so I spent those three years traveling around, interviewing a lot of game developers. And I interviewed about 200 game developers, did a survey of another 200, 
um, wrote a bunch of journal articles and essentially that large research project into effectively the state of game development in Australia um, eventually led to this book as I suppose kind of a capstone or the cornerstone of that project. So um, as a starting point, why not follow your book outline? And um, in chapter one, you start by shifting the conceptual frame of reference from a singular video game industry to a video game field. And I was wondering um, what kind of conceptual frame of reference are we talking about here, actually? And how did you implement that shifting process? Hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I need to like think back and how did I do that? Um, yes. So as I kind of said to the previous question, I really just wanted to find a different way to talk about what was going on because I felt like kind of the narratives we were getting about how the context in which games were made talked about companies or talked about these billion dollar industries that made more money than film or more, more money than music. I'm like, this doesn't connect with these kind of poor arty types I know who are just kind of experimenting. Um, and in particular, I was thinking about the industry surveys. And so you would get, say, the GDC State of the Industry Survey, which is a large one every year, or the IGDA um, does their Developer Satisfaction Survey, and a lot of, like, kind of national industries. So here in Australia, we've got the IGEA. Um, in Finland, there's NeoGames. There's the NZGDA in New Zealand. Um, all these different ones all over the place. MDEC, I think, is one in Malaysia. And all of these kind of lobby groups, if you will, um, do their own little industry reports about the state of the industry in their country. And something I started thinking about, especially one of them which pointed out kind of the low gender diversity in Australia, in Australia's game industry, I was thinking, who isn't filling this out? Who is who is a game developer who makes games all the time, but they see this report, they see this industry survey come out, and who isn't thinking I should fill that out? And so that's why I was thinking, well, I need to go talk to people. I need to go find out not just who's making games, but of the people who are making games, which of them even think of themselves as making games or think of themselves as part of the video game industry. And so that led me slowly over time, like read a lot of different theories, had a lot of different ideas, and ultimately ended up with um, Pierre Bordeaux's idea of the field of cultural production, which kind of builds off his broader idea of field theory. Um, and I probably do it's much better justice in the book than I will trying to say it out loud now. But so the field of cultural production for Bordeaux is essentially, he calls it the economic world reverse. So how, so it's a way to think about say an arty scene of like painters or poets or whatever. How do you account for, um, the fact that making money or doing something that makes a lot of money isn't necessarily the same as making the thing that is critically successful or the thing that gives you legitimacy within the field with the other poets or with the other artists. And so he talks about the ideas of cultural capital and social capital as like different kinds of capital that people pursue within a field as opposed to simply economic capital. And he uses those ideas to think about how do people position themselves within the field, but also as the field. So the field not as a predefined fenced off area, but rather almost more like a constellation that's constantly changing as new people come along and try to position themselves in the field. And so when I was reading Bordeaux, and I remember, I know David Hesmanhauge, a cultural industries researcher, he writes about having the exact same experience as a junior scholar, just reading Bordeaux and Bordeaux is just talking about the Paris theater scene of the sixties, like something very, very niche. 
and reading that and being like, this is exactly what I'm seeing with Australian game developers. You've got the people making a lot of money with their large studios. And then you've got these kind of weird collectives of arty kids just doing their own thing and very deliberately and explicitly not being commercially successful. But all of this is interconnecting and intersecting in, in really complex ways. So I ultimately got to a point where I'm like, well, the, the video, we've talked a lot about the video game industry. We understand the companies. We understand the labor issues. We know what AAA is. We know what commercial indie is. But what we haven't really understood yet as, as a field of research is the, cult, like the cultural field that that industry emerges out of. Um, and a sentence I've been saying recently when I talk about the book is like, video game development had to exist before it could be industrialized. So there were people making video games, there were people um, doing all sorts of innovations and creativity, and then the companies came along and industrialized it. So the video game field is the way to think about all the activity that exists before that industrialization, but to this day kind of beyond, I guess, the jurisdiction of that um, industrialization as well. It's how do we account for everything else, I suppose, is maybe the shorter way to say it. Mm. And in your, in your next chapter, you, you introduce Australia's video game field as the main case study for the chapters to follow. Now, as someone living almost 9,000 uh, miles away, I'm more than eager to learn more about it. Mm. Yeah, so Australia's video game industry is, has a really fascinating history. Um, and it's kind of this like really great case study for the book. And obviously, I live in Australia, so I was probably going to write about the Australian game industry one way or the other. But it's, it's a really interesting liminal case where throughout, God, there's so many parts of it, but essentially throughout the 90s and the 2000s, um, well, let's go back further. In the 1980s, there was a lot of kind of microcomputer activity here. Um, Melanie Swalwell has some amazing books on the kind of microcomputer scene in Australia. Um, we had a few game studios like Melbourne House who made The Hobbit interactive fiction game. Um, and then during the 90s and the 2000s, I guess a more formal game industry developed, making a lot of larger games for both PC and console, but primarily as effectively outsourcing labor. So they, they wouldn't call themselves outsourcing labor. They would call themselves work for hire. But essentially, if you were an American publisher or a European publisher, uh, the exchange rate was good. Australia was cheap labor. It was English-speaking labor. It was highly skilled labor. And it was on the other side of the world. So you could get your work done while you were asleep. So if you were, so Australia had, there was a 2K studio here that worked on Bioshock and Borderlands. LA Noir was made entirely in Sydney. A um, bunch of other AAA games were made at least in part in Australia. But Australia doesn't get like, you know, we don't think of Bioshock Infinite as an Australian video game, right? Even though it was largely made here. It was just kind of cheap labor. That was the main way of thinking about it. And so then in the late 2000s, or maybe more around 2010, um, the effects of the global financial crisis were rippling out. And Australia did pretty well in the global financial crisis, largely thanks to uh, mineral exports, selling coal to China effectively, um, and a few kind of good government things as well. And so what that meant, the American dollar dropped, the Australian dollar didn't, and suddenly one American dollar equaled one Australian dollar, which was great for buying games on Steam. It was like excellent time to be a gamer not a good time to be a game developer in australia because all of a sudden you weren't you weren't cheap for the americans anymore and so the game industry in australia collapsed um in the early 2010s you know over about it was about 2,000 people working here over a thousand of those jobs got lost um 
I'll put the actual percentages of a book. I can't remember them now, but like, you know, almost overwhelmingly destroyed. And people would lose a job, go get another job, then lose that job, get another one. Really traumatizing experience for a lot of the developers I spoke to. And then what we saw in the 2010s was the rise of indie development, the rise of mobile development with the start of um, the iPhone and Android later on. And so those game developers that didn't leave the Australian industry entirely, they didn't have access to large resources anymore. They didn't have Ubisoft or 2K bankrolling them. So small mobile games for this new iPhone platform was a great way to go. And so a lot of early mobile games, huge successes came out of Australia, including um, what's it called? Flight Control, um, Fruit Ninja, Ski Safari, Jetpack Joyride. Um, A lot of incredible games came out of Australia. And that was really the start of what we have now in Australia, which is an industry where the majority of people are indie, where indie is kind of the default way to be a game developer. And really that's, that's what most of the world's game industry is like. For AAA studios primarily exist in a few specific cities in North America, in Japan, in a few European cities, a few more in China these days. But like in the vast majority of the world where games are made, there aren't large studios. Um, and so, what, so what's interesting about Australia is it has, it has a legacy of large studios. It's got the skills, it's got the history, but it also today looks like most of the world in that it's just really ragtag, really low scale, kind of semi-formal. So Australia's bill is a really great case study for me to look at because it has that kind of liminal existence and has such a fascinating history there. But yeah, that's what it's mm-hmm. like. Yeah. And if, 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 uh, <laughs> if I take a look at uh, a closer look at chapter three, I was wondering, of course, um, what exactly is this term, this game work thing? What is it? Hmm. Yeah, so game work, I, I mean, game work's a really interesting word in that it's kind of become more popular, especially since um, 2018 um, with the rise of the union movement, like a way to really think about, um, you know, the labor that goes in, into into video games. Um, there was a book, I think, way before that, um, I forgot the name of it. I think of the early 2010s, I was literally called game work, but I think first coined the term. Um, but it's essentially like historically the game industry or game development labor, and many researchers have written about this and have written about this for decades, is that it's, it's passionate labor, it's creative labor. It's the kind of labor where um, the game industry has always been able to rely on passionate and enthusiastic um, young gamer men um, who are probably middle class, who grew up loving video games and and don't really think of their work as work. They're just happy to be here. They just feel really lucky that they get to work at a video game company. And so, and as has been pretty common throughout the creative industries under capitalism more broadly, um, large companies have been able to take advantage of that by kind of making game development not feel like work, but instead feel like something you should be happy you get a chance to do. And by kind of obscuring the workness of it, the labor of it, being able to kind of keep prices down, not prices, sorry, being able to keep like um, wages down and expect longer hours out of people, et cetera. So the union movement and I guess the game work, workers' rights movement, especially since 2018, but before that as well, has I think really latched onto this word game work to emphasize that it is work, that it is labor, that it generates value, that employers and large companies kind of get to extract and exploit and so in that chapter in chapter three i'm primarily interested in um 
I guess, highlighting the extent of precarity and kind of gig work that underpins the modern game industry. I guess I kind of see chapter three as probably almost the main chapter of the book in many ways. And originally it was chapter two, but then I felt like I needed the Australia chapter. So I got, it got pushed back a bit further. But it's essentially where I really highlight my interviews and like the kind of feeling of instability amongst the many developers I spoke to. Um, I think it starts with, chapter three starts with an anecdote of this guy I speak to at a, a larger studio here in Brisbane. I think about 30 people at the time really one of the best known well, studios within the Australian games industry, you know, it was seen as really popular, really successful. And he was like, man, if this studio shuts down, I don't know where I would go. I really enjoy doing 3D games. There was nowhere else in Brisbane that, um, you know, does 3D games. Everyone else is 2D and mobile. And so he was like, I don't know where I would go if this place shut down. And then like literally within 12 months, that place shut down. Like it just, it just disappeared because they couldn't get funding. And so the, the, the owners of that studio, to their credit, were like, well, look, we're not going to screw everybody's kind of benefits over by taking this on longer than we can. We'll, we'll, we'll stop it now while we can still pay everybody what they're owed. Um, so, like, I think about that guy and just, like, he felt insecure and he turns out he was insecure. And then there's another studio I talk about in that chapter where, you know, where this guy talks very openly and very explicitly um, about underpaying himself and the other two co-directors of a company underpaying themselves but they're not worried about that because they're directors like on paper with the tax office they're employers they're not employees and so as far as the company looks like it just looks like three people are running their own company that looks really stable that looks really secure they would fill out the industry surveys and say here's a three-person company but in reality they're just doing um, contract work for other studios and working in a supermarket and just putting their own savings in this company to keep it afloat. So there's this, if you go beneath the surface of, I guess, the like games make billions of dollars kind of stories. And if you go beyond the, oh, wow, you must work, you work in the game industry, you must have so much fun all the time. What you find instead is a lot of people working very hard in very precarious conditions um, without a whole lot of safety nets and, 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 and not really in conditions that reflect the very lucrative value that is the video game industry. So, so again, game work is a way to kind of expose and talk about those labor kind of conditions a bit, I would say. Yeah, just, I just was skipping through the pages and here where my text marker went all crazy because <laughs> I, I, you really got me there. I mean, you, you, you write yourself, it's become common practice to the point of cliche to begin any piece of writing about video game production by proclaiming yada, yada, yada. And I felt so, man, you got me there. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> we all do it. It's hard, it's, it's hard not to, like... We, we live we live under capitalism, right? Like dollar values is kind of the primary way that socially we learn to point out something is valuable. Just last week, I think the New Zealand Game Developers Association had this big press release boasting that like we now think the New Zealand game industry now makes more money than wool. And like wool is a massive export of New Zealand. And it's like, it's absurd. Like this idea that video games are more important than wool like, which is a pretty fundamental resource for society because we've got to stay warm. But, like, but it becomes the necessary shorthand. If you're trying to convince a government minister or your mum or somebody who doesn't really care about video games at all that this thing actually matters and maybe they should think about it, you're going to go to straight to how much money it makes. 
and like I did it in the grant that allowed me to write this book, ironically. Um, and so it, it totally makes sense that we do it all the time, but it ends up hiding so much um, when we kind of rely on that shorthand. Yeah. Well, you discussed the role of education in your next chapter, in particular, the formal game education. And as someone teaching the young, bright minds in game design and critical game analysis courses, I'm very eager to hear you talk about that point. Mm. Yeah, so education is obviously a really important part of it. Like it's part of, you know, the pipeline, if we can call it that, of how like skills and like, you know, new workers enter the game industry. Um, and historically hasn't been extensively researched um it, it's it's starting to um alison harvey um in in canada has been doing some incredible work and has several great journal articles on it which i draw from extensively and, and there's a few previous ones but essentially i taught game development full-time for two years before that i was teaching casually during my phd um at rmit university and it always just fascinated me the kind of the difference with the way game development university education was was marketed and the kind of expectations of the students when they started compared to those in kind of the neighboring disciplines of like film production or music or whatnot and i remember too in my own undergraduate i studied poetry as one of my majors well i studied creative writing as one of my majors and it included poetry and other things and like i didn't expect i was ever going to make money as a poet right that wasn't obviously had naive optimistic hopes but it certainly wasn't I wasn't going to graduate with a poetry degree, quit my job at a supermarket and go shop around my bachelor of poetry to, you know, get a job in a poetry company. That's absurd and wouldn't work. Same with a music degree. But you would have these students enter a game development degree who have never made a game in their life. And by, by a game, I mean literally just like open Twine or open Bitsy and played around with it. But instead they're like, they don't think that's even possible because for them, leg a legitimate video game is Call of Duty or it's Fez or it's Super Meat Boy, these games that they have no idea how to even start approaching making. And so often they think, well, I'll go to university, they'll reveal to me the way to make a game, I'll get my degree, and then someone will hire me and then I will make a game, which if we're serious about understanding games as kind of a creative cultural practice or games as an art form even, that's just not how art forms work. That's not how cultural fields work. You don't You don't learn how to do it and then you do it. You do it, you keep doing it, you learn by doing it. And then eventually, if you're lucky, you'll make some money from doing it as well. And so I, I remember when I was teaching game design, just trying to, I guess, like hammer that into my students really early on when they still have the chance to get out without much debt of being like, this is, you've enrolled in a creative writing degree and that's fine. And I'm not saying that there's no hope for you you'll never get a job out of this but that you don't know what the job will be you don't know where you're going to actually be able to use these skills um and yeah so looked a lot at kind of the, what the institutions say about themselves especially their marketing and compared that to what students and educators were saying which is obviously often very very different from what the institutions were saying so the universities and the colleges very much trying to target students as gamers like hey gamers You love Call of Duty, so now be a game developer, um, which is kind of like saying a music student, like, hey, you love listening to Taylor Swift, so maybe you should become a musician, which, again, would be absurd. Um, so what was interesting is kind of the amount of work that 
educators had to do to kind of realign students' expectations with what with what it actually means to learn how to make games as a creative practice. And also what was interesting and what I talked about in that chapter is how much thinking of game development education as a pipeline into industry jobs, which is very much what the gamer way of thinking about it does, is very much privileges a particular kind of game making practice, which itself is often very gendered um, and implies you're in a particular, you're already part of gamer culture, which is not the same as just game playing culture more broadly. And so what I would see as an educator and what came clear in my interviews is often the young women who enrolled in game development, often like, I don't want to essentialize, but often far better students, but because they didn't have to unlearn anything, they didn't have to unlearn their misunderstandings of how game development works. If they learned on some Reddit or from some YouTuber, um, they, they didn't, they weren't trying to make Call of Duty for their first student game. They just like, I want to express this idea. So the students who weren't gamers, who were generally usually the more marginal or diverse students, often had a greater advantage in the classroom, but they also had much lower confidence because all the other students, all the marketing, everything was kind of saying, you're not a real gamer. You, you should have played the last 15 Final Fantasies if you want to make video games. And so a lot of them would drop out or you know go into a sub-discipline or do something else. And so there's just this really interesting disconnect between understanding game making holistically as a practice and the pressures of, I guess, the neoliberal university to push students towards kind of like job ready pipelines where you're just pumping out, you know, plug and play employees that the industry can hire after they, you know, crunch through and burn out for last generation five years earlier. Um, yeah. What else can I say about that chapter? I, th- I think it's fascinating. It's just, it's such an interesting area, um, game dev education, and developers have talked about this for, for years at GDC, on blogs, so much discourse and anxiety around game dev education. A lot of, a lot of um, suspicion that these colleges are just predator, predators preying on students' um, passion. And there is some extent that's true when it comes to the marketing, but there's also an extent to which getting a job in the game industry shouldn't be the be-all and end-all of learning how to be a game maker at university. Um, there are transferable skills. There are just the holistic education of like learning an art form. Um, so, so it gets really complicated very quickly when you try to talk about the ethics of teaching game making at university. Yeah. Your readers also are learning in chapter five then that small scale independent video game production teams, they seek financial stability by undertaking contract work for clients in other economic sectors. And I wonder, what have you found out about that particular strategy? Yeah, so what I call, so in that chapter, I call them embedded game making, sorry, embedded game makers. And I take the word embedded from some other researchers, primarily at my university in the creative industries, Stuart Cunningham and others. And they talk about this this idea of embedded creatives. And that's kind of their argument was that if you really want to understand the full extent of the creative workforce, You can't just look at the film industry industry or game industry or music industry. You need to look more broadly at where else are people going with music skills or with game development skills or with um, filmmaking skills. Um, you know, the graphic designer who gets hired by a mining company to do kind of websites, internal websites or, or something like that. And so their idea was there are creative workers embedded in other sectors of the economy. And so a lot of the 
developers I was interviewing in Australia, you kind of there were kind of two very different ways to approach it as a small scale independent. And by this, I mean like these companies that are maybe three or five people, um, not a whole lot of money. They might not even have an office. They might be working out of a co-working space. It was one of two ways they would approach their work. One is um, they would throw all of their energy and resources into the, their, the game that they love, the game they really want to make, um, often spending their own savings or relying on some small government grants, trying to get a publisher, and just trying to make the game they want to make in the hope that one day, you know, it would get popular on Steam, it would get popular on Nintendo Switch, and, you know, it would make a lot of, enough money to fund the next game. And that's kind of the common way of doing it. And those people are often really exhausted, really stressed out, really um, self-exploiting, arguably, in terms of like pumping their own savings into this work and not paying themselves enough. But then the other kind of company were these embedded game makers. And so they would also be small teams, also be independent, also really want to make their own intellectual property one day, but have ultimately decided they're not going to self-exploit in the same way. They're not going to, you know, run through their own savings just to be a game developer. And so instead they find a more financial, more financially secure way to operate as a company, which is to find clients who are going to pay. And so that means doing work on, say, advertisement games or education games or training simulators, essentially anything in a broad area of serious games or gamification. Because there's, there's, there's such a huge amount of enthusiasm in that space from kind of the corporate sector. And so let's say, um, what's an example that I had? I think there was an insurance company that wanted like a Minecraft made game about like bushfire safety. And one studio worked on that. Um, and, or, or like a game that like is a M health app that like kind of also checks if young children have hearing problems by getting them to play a game in a certain way. And so these developers would do that kind of work. And what that kind of work would achieve is you don't get to work on the really creative, original thing that you love, but you still get to do work on something that has very defined goals, very defined timeline, um, and a very defined outcome for, for, a very, for a known amount of money. So if a client comes to you and like, I want you to make this game in six months and I'll give you this much money, you know, that gives you some security as a company to know, all right, we can hire this many people for that long and we know how much money we're getting at the end of it. And so what's really fascinating about that to me is if we're thinking about a cultural field in the Bordeaux sense as kind of this like perpetual tension between creativity and economic kind of values, you know, do you sell out or do you, you know, stay true as a starving artist? Um, it would be very, very easy for me just to look at those precarious indie devs and look at, oh, everyone's trying to be creative. Everyone wants to be a starving artist. But these companies are just a fascinating other side of the equation where they're willing to make sacrifices creatively in order to have more stable employment, more secure working conditions and things like that. And something that was interesting about them as well is how many of them kind of made these, made these kind of arguments when they would explain why they did it for kind of the social value of what they did, especially if they got to work on a, um, on a project for, say, a, a, um, a non-government organisation, like a non-profit that's trying to raise awareness about pollution in the Great Barrier Reef, as one of the studios was working on. And so they didn't get to make their kind of creative 
you know, masterpiece, but they got to make a game that they felt had kind of social value. It wasn't just for the money. So the cultural kind of got offset to the social in a really fascinating way. But then, of course, all these companies also speak about how much they want to, um, one day they would love to make their own game. So that, that's always on the horizon. It's this kind of carrot on the end of a stick. One day when we finally have enough money, when we finally have enough security, then we will make our own game. And what seems to happen with most of these companies is that that day never never comes. It never actually happens because you would because you would have to sacrifice the stability and the amount of income that I've gotten used to if you wanted to do that. And even when you start doing your own game, you're like, all right, let's do it. And then another client comes and is like, hey, I want to give you $10 million to make this boring education game. You can't really say no to that. It, w- it would be absurd to say no. And also it means that client isn't going to come back in the future but then the next time they have $10 million. Um, I just made up $10 million. I don't know what actual values they use. And, and so um, I don't think there's any game developers in Australia getting $10 million for their client work. Um, but, 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 you know, so there's a, secu- there's a security, but that security then means you, often, you never really get to do the creative thing you really want to do. But maybe that's okay because they have much, much better work conditions on the whole. Hmm. A broader look into, into game-making culture also is offered in your very next chapter then. And we're talking about festivals and co-working spaces, for instance, here. You also introduced the term game scene. Please elaborate for this um, a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So that chapter, what number is it? I can't remember the chapter numbers anymore. Chapter six, scenes and communities. Really just trying to talk about the other more broad networks of collaboration, of um, support that exists and which kind of companies and um, even emerge out of that often isn't really accounted for when we talk about the game industry. When we talk about the industry, we're often thinking of companies and companies interacting. We're not often thinking of communities or, or scenes and so the term game scene i guess I, d- I don't really think i created that well i didn't create that term but rather that's the word that some of my interviewees not all of them to stress but some would use that word they would talk about the local scene and um i would often use that word as well i would talk about the local scene and, and so scene is just such a evocative word and um It's got really valuable connotations. When we think about the music scene or a poetry scene or a graffiti scene, it, it comes with all sorts of suggestions of informality, of um, oh, what's his name, the scene dude, Will. <laughs> I forgot his last name. Will, the guy who writes about scenes in music, in popular music um, um, work. He um, talks about the scene as kind of the, um, the surplus or the overflow of a local industry. Um, that like you know can't be contained just by employment in, in companies. Will Straw, that was his name, um, and and so like this the scene kind of like that idea that there is a game scene in Melbourne or in Brisbane. What that captures is not just employees at companies or employees hanging out at a bar on a Wednesday night, which is community kind of implies the scene suggests there's all this other activity. Um, and the word scene kind of centers on the activity rather than on the, the subjects, I would, I would say, where there's like game-making activity happening. And that game-making activity might be happening in formal companies. It might be happening with like hobbyists who work around a day job. It might be happening in kind of, you know, just weird warehouse parties where 
you know, someone's a DJ and someone else is making games on the side and they're collaborating with somebody else who's creative as well. It just kind of has a creative coolness vibe to it as a, as a term that captures something really ephemeral and really um, evocative um, about these spaces. But what's interesting about it, for those exact same reasons, it also comes across as pretentious. And a lot of people have a lot of reluctance to the word because if they say they're part, saying you're part of a scene kind of makes you sound like a wanker. And, and so like when, when my uh, interviewees said the local scene, they would often immediately like roll their eyes at themselves for even saying the word scene. Um, but I guess so more broadly in that chapter, I try to, I compared two different cities, um, Melbourne and Adelaide and Adelaide is, um, a city down on Australia's South coast in South Australia. Um, not very big, um, about the same size as Brisbane, much, much smaller than Melbourne. Um, it's got a small games industry or, or field, if you will, nowhere near as big as Melbourne. And it also has the, the challenge that a lot of its game developers just go to Melbourne because it's not far away. And what I wanted to do when I, in this chapter, highlighting these two cities is I articulate the way the locals, local game developers would talk about their own city. And what happened in both these places, and it absolutely happened in other cities as well, is they would talk about the scene and the industry, or they would talk about the developers who are mostly interested in money and the developers who are mostly interested in art. Um, or they would, you know, all these different kind of, um, um, you know, kind of reductive black and white ways of saying it, which they knew themselves was, in, was insufficient, but essentially pointing out that not everyone who's a game developer in Melbourne is, is in the same community or in the same networks. And what often happens when we talk about game industry, game making, when we flatten it to a game industry, we often flatten game making in a single city to um, the Melbourne games industry or the Adelaide games industry, as if everyone is in one big happy family. And to use analogies of other creative sectors again, that would be absurd if we were talking about music. If we were just to talk about the New York music scene, it's like, well, are you talking about classical? Are you talking about jazz? Are you talking about punk? Are you talking about indie? Are you talking about hip hop? Are you talking, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, part, I guess if part of what the entire book is doing is trying to say it's more complicated than just an industry is by talking about scenes and communities, I can highlight the conflicting scenes, the conflicting um, position taking that happens in one city between you know, for cool up and coming kids who are too cool to make money and who are running little art shows that they don't want the industry to know about. And then the industry where people are like, I have a mortgage and free kids and I need, I need a day job. Like, of course I'm going to do it for money. And if it's kind of tensions between them as well. Um, and in Melbourne, I guess I won't, I won't go super into detail in Melbourne and Adelaide, but in Melbourne, that was really interesting when I was doing my PhD in Melbourne in the early 2010s was we really saw that kind of bifurcation of the scene of the industry where um, for a few years, every, everybody was indie, right? Again, like the industry had crashed, whether you were a five-person company making a lot of money or two mates who were also students, everybody had that indie label. And in the survey I ran, 80% of my respondents said they were indie. Indie isn't the alternative. Indie is the mainstream when we talk about game development. But what that means was like there were very, very different, very contested ideas of what that even means to be indie. Um, 
And so around events like a free play independent games festival in Melbourne, which has been running since 2004, you would get very, very different camps of people arguing kind of very different things from like, you know, very extreme at both ends. Like if you try to make money from your games, you're a capitalist pig to, um, you know, if you don't make money from your games, you're an idiot or you have to think about marketing. And it's like, well, maybe you don't if you're just doing this for fun. And, and so you kind of got these tensions and people felt, you know, kind of really interpersonal tensions for a while there as well. And, and so, yeah, so the scene, it allows me to talk about different scenes within, within one city. It allows me to kind of pluralize what's going on while still holding on to kind of the connections and tensions that kind of co-constitute the two sides of that at the same time. Um, I kind of feel like I'm rambling now, but I guess that's what I'm getting at, just the multiplicity of game-making identities within one city. Hmm. Yeah. And um, um, let's say for, I'm following the claim in your, in your last chapter then that the, uh, scare quotes here, the video game industry fails to represent the broader field of video game production cultures. I also quote you right here. And I'd like to uh, summarize this specific point before we slowly exit the stage. Yeah. So I start that chapter of an anecdote um, that I really like, which I think captures my broader feeling about things like um, funding arrangements for games and whatnot, where like the Australian government, just as I was writing my book, very annoyingly announced this like large tax offset for games in Australia. Like I think it's a 30% tax offset for like wages of your game workers in Australia and very much with the hope of like to attract large companies to set up shop in Australia again, hire lots of local labor, you know, like, you know, like trying to get a Ubisoft in Melbourne or what have you. Um, that tax offset doesn't actually exist yet, but it's still coming. And, you know, they were really advertising and pushing for that. And the idea, what was interesting about that video was it highlighted a whole lot of Australian games. Like, look at all this cool stuff being made here. You could be a part of it as well. And to, get a, to, to be eligible for a tax offset, you need to earn at least five, you need to spend at least $500,000 Australian, like half a million dollars, um, to, to be eligible for the tax offset. And some of the games that were showing were for really popular, really amazing indie games that, were, that have been made in Australia in recent years that have really put Australia on the map globally as a, as a cool game industry um, or game field, I guess. Um, but like some of those small indie companies would not have spent for half a million dollars that would have made them eligible for the tax offset that was being marketed, that they were being used to market. And so ultimately what I'm trying to say in this chapter is that there, sure, there is a game industry, despite the name of my book, um, but that like it, the game industry can't exist or a game industry can't exist in any local geographic place without a much, much broader field of, of game making activity um, to exploit, essentially, to exploit for skills, to exploit for cultural capital and just general coolness, to exploit for kind of aesthetic innovations and mechanical innovations. Um, You need all of that if you're going to build a local game industry. And it's kind of my bugbear when it comes to government funding for games, um, which is much, much better now in Australia than it used to be. But, but it was always kind of like, you know, you would fund film because, like, films are important. And, like, you know, the soft capital of, like, everyone in the world knowing what Bluey is meant it's important to fund Bluey. Um, but, like, when it came to video game cultural funding, it was like, well, how many jobs will this make? Um, how much investment will it make? 
and it was never the cultural value. It was the commercial value. But, but it kind of puts the carriage in front of a horse because even if you want the commercial growth, you need to foster a creative culture. You need to foster a, a space where it's safe to experiment. You need the cool, pretentious, wanky kids in the scene to be doing their cool, wanky stuff so that when Ubisoft opens up, people are like, hey, Australia, Melbourne's kind of a cool place. Maybe I will move there and work for Ubisoft. Or that those cool, wanky kids, when they um, you know, decide they actually want to buy a house or decide, hey, maybe I do need private health insurance, they'll go work at Ubisoft. Um, so like, you need the large companies, absolutely. You can't just you know, live off being cool and creative. But like, you don't get the industry. You don't get the the stable commercial growth without the weird non-commercial creative stuff. Um, and so that is the broader field of video game production cultures, the stuff that doesn't make a direct profit in any direct linear way, but which is absolutely fundamental as the foundations or, or the fertilizer, although that's not a very nice kind of metaphor if, you, if you're trying to like grow a um, industry locally. And so that's kind of like the main point I try to make in that chapter, for better or worse, I guess like the way of trying to talk to like neoliberal policymakers is, hey, you should be supporting this stuff if you want the jobs and growth that you want, the kind of um, critical cultural studies, Marxist kind of argument I make there is that this is where value is generated. But like um, the large companies own the means of production, they own the means of distribution, you need to use you know, commercial platforms like Steam or the PlayStation Store, you need to use Unity or Unreal, you know, these kind of things that although they promise democratization, they promise a fair go for everyone. And in a lot of ways they do. They do a lot of really, really incredible stuff. And like Unity, like it's it's amazing that we have this. But at the same time, Steam will always take, or Valve will always take 30% of every game without having to invest any risk whatsoever in all the developers trying to make it on Steam. And like Unity will get all the that, you know, you make a cool game of Unity, Unity gets to put that game on a billboard and be like, that was made of Unity. And, you know, plus getting the, you know, 30% of all your data and whatever you sell on the asset store. And so there's these kind of political economic regimes of like platform capitalism, which means the industry kind of directly profits from and relies on this much, much broader field of informal activity um, to kind of prop itself up, I suppose, which I don't know, the way I said it just kind of made it sound like a conspiracy theory. But it's like if you're just looking at the industry, if you're just looking at the companies, you're only kind of, you've only got half half the equation if you're trying to understand where where video game making happens. Well... I always like to kindly ask my guests for a little meta reflection. What aspects, <clears throat> sorry, what aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book that did not make the cut? And secondly, and I'm really excited to ask that one, especially in regards to your past, <laughs> where you see game studies as a research field in general at the moment. Yeah, totally. Um, Look, for the first one, what I wish was in there or what I'm now interested in and will hopefully cover in like future um, research projects is I think this book dealt a lot with labor, essentially, but I'm very, very interested now in, in practice or in like creative practice. So how do we talk about game making as, as a creative practice, as something that is iterative, that is negotiated and material with tools? Like how, 
Um, and I've done a bit of his work previously with Benjamin Nichol on our book about unity, but only a little bit. But like, how do we talk about unity or how do we talk about Blender or how do we talk about Pico 8 as, as tools the same way we would talk about a guitar or a, or a canvas or a, um, um, I don't know, something else that exists, a film camera, a photographer, let's say. Like, how do we talk about the materiality of these tools and kind of the negotiations that developers enter creatively with them? Um, because kind of like my first book was very content centric on, um, you know, textual analysis and whatnot. This book, I almost, I, I almost don't talk about any video game at all in this book, which is really, really interesting to me. I talk about the developers, but there's no real analysis of the games they make in this book, which you can't do everything. So that's, it's fine, but it's interesting to me. And so I think there's a way to marry those two. And I've done it a little bit in a journal article for convergence on craft and game making. But I think there's a lot more to do there in terms of how do we marry you know, our love in game studies or just like analyzing games for their themes and narrative, et cetera, with like the, the material realities they're made under. And, and what I keep going back to is like doing film studies in undergrad. And like, you would just learn about how um, Harrison Ford really didn't want to do the voiceover for Blade Runner. And that's why it sounds like crap. Or like they used this kind of camera instead of that kind of camera. And that leads to the eeriness of this scene. Like this, like this really... I wouldn't say easy, but like a non-controversial marrying of form and content or like creation and um, consumption in other fields that I don't think we've quite figured out yet in how we talk about video games critically. Um, and so I'm really, really interested in like doing that more. Um, and I say we haven't figured out yet. I don't think we've quite figured out in game studies yet, but I do think like game journalism and game, popular game criticism is starting to do really well with that stuff, um, especially as game journalists start to care more about kind of labor conditions. Um, where I see game studies at the moment, it's in some ways it's a hard way to answer on this side of the pandemic because I always kind of relied on, you know, going to a DIGRA or another international conference and just seeing what all the new PhD students were doing that I didn't previously know. And I haven't had the chance to do that since 2019, which is um, really sad, but I'll be at DIGRA week after next, which um, I'll let you know after that. But, but I think ultimately like, there's, there's so much game studies happening now, which is really exciting. It's got so many of its own journals, but also is so kind of diffused in other journals and other publications. I, I think selfishly the part that I'm very excited by to see emerge in the last, I'm going to say five years, definitely the last three years, is something of a subfield of game studies, which is game production studies. And I think that's largely been championed by um, Ali Satama and like um, Jan Svelk in, um, in Tampere in Finland. Um, but there's kind of a number of us now in Finland, in Canada, here in Australia, and, and others scattered around who who are looking at game production, not just games themselves. And seeing that field kind of grow and stabilize and um, formalize is really nice. At the 2019 DIGRA conference in Kyoto, there was a games business track, I believe. And like the same people were in that room for the entire like three or four day conference. It was like this real sense of, um, hey, there's something of like, a sub-discipline or a sub-field forming here, which was really, really nice and exciting. So I think that's the main thing I'm interested in, excited in, and where game studies is going, just to focus on the material, I guess, on just like the people, the labor, and just seeing how that then gets connected back to what game studies has done for the last 20 years, which is the narrative, the aesthetics, the themes, and so on. So, yeah. Hmm. 
Well, Brandon, we've taken a lot of your time. What are you working on right now? I mean, you were mentioning that you will be traveling a lot in the next few weeks, but will there be also a little bit of time maybe for some tiny, tiny, tiny digital games? <laughs> yeah, so what am I working on? Um, as I said, very interested in kind of questions of creative practice and we'll be starting a large project with some other researchers on that in later this year. We'll be um, kind of doing something of like an art history of games in Australia, like we're going to like interview artists and try to understand, you know, what were the intersections of game making and kind of the new media, new media arts kind of areas in Australia going back to the early 2000s and kind of like try to articulate that kind of creative practice stuff I was talking about. I'm also getting increasingly fascinated with the Southeast Asian game industry. Here in Australia with our colonial history, we often just think of ourselves as Western, which is often true in a lot of ways culturally, but like geographically we're, We're right there in Southeast Asia next to Indonesia and the Philippines and all of those. And there's a lot of really, really fascinating kind of um, regional challenges and regional differences there. So something I'm really hoping to do is do more research on and with kind of the Southeast Asian game industry or game field, I should say. I'm not allowed to say industry anymore. Um, and just find out like, yeah, what, like there's just so much fascinating stuff happening in the area, which I don't think many researchers are focusing on yet. So um, yeah, I want to look at some of that stuff. Um, in terms of what games I'm playing, again, probably Zelda for the time being while I'm traveling. Um, yeah, I don't know what, what else after that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I see a lot of great and promising projects on the horizon then. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And, well, take care and goodbye, Brendan. And for letting me talk for so long. <laughs> so dear listeners i hope you liked this episode if you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication and or research please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indest at googlemail.com alternatively please send me a direct message on social media you will find me under rudolf indest almost everywhere um, for example, Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever you see fit. And now see you in a bit and goodbye.